girls to be dismissed to toddler nursery and children's church. Those who will remain in the sanctuary, I invite you to turn to Leviticus chapter 11. Leviticus chapter 11, back to Leviticus this morning. As you're turning there, I just want to take a, a brief pause and just make mention of the song that we just sang, uh, God Moves. It's written by a man named Bob Coughlin, um, who kind of a founder and establisher of a, a group called Sovereign Grace Music. If you're not familiar with songs written by or performed by Bob Coughlin or Sovereign Grace Music, I, t- I encourage you to go and check that out. It'd be incredibly edifying to your soul. Uh, and so just a brief story about that particular song. The first time that I ever heard it, I was at a very large conference. And it, it was a mixed audience. It was men and women. But there, there were far more men there than there were women. Just how the conference was designed. And uh, there were about 10,000 people inside of this stadium-like room. And, you know, I... The, the more days go by, the more I just naturally get identified by our modern culture as a sexist and the more I just don't care. Um, women sing beautifully. This is my opinion. Men sing powerfully. And when you're in a room with 10,000 people and about 7,000 of them are men. And all that's going on is a guy playing the piano and you're singing that song. And it's mostly just large, loud male voices vibrating your chest. It's just shaking the whole room. It is an incredible thing to hear that sort of song like it really is. And so that's the first time I'd ever heard that song was in that sort of an environment. And again, if you're not familiar with Sovereign Grace music and the stuff Bob Coughlin has done, it's incredible. Like, you just need to jump it on your playlist as soon as you can. That's my music recommendation for the day. Elders always get nervous when I make music recommendations, but I did a good one this morning. So anyway, Leviticus chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. The Lord spoke again to Moses and to Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, these are the creatures which you may eat from all of the animals that are on the earth. Now, I'm going to pause here before we go through the list. I I know that right about now, it's 10, 1045. Some of you are already starting to think through texting each other in the audience while I'm preaching. Where are we going to go eat lunch today? Pay close attention to the kinds of places you can and cannot go to eat lunch this afternoon. Whatever divides a hoof, thus making split hooves, and chews the cud among the animals, that you may eat. Nevertheless, you are not to eat of these among which uh, chew the cud, or among those which divide the hoof, the camel. For though it chews the cud, it does not divide the hoof, it is unclean to you. Likewise, the shafan, uh, though it chews the cud, it does not divide the hoof, and is unclean to you. The rabbit also, for though it chews the cud, it does not divide the hoof, it is unclean to you. And strike deep within my heart and the pig, for though it divides the hoof, thus making a split hoof, it does not chew the cud. It is unclean to you. You shall not eat of their flesh nor touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you. These you may eat, whatever is in the water, all that have fins and scales, those in the water and the seas or the rivers you may eat. But whatever is in the seas and in the rivers and does not have fins and scales among all the teeming life of the waters and among all the living creatures that are in the water, they are detestable things to you and they shall be abhorrent to you and you may not eat their flesh and their carcasses you shall detest. Whatever in the water does not have fins and scales is abhorrent to you. These moreover you shall detest among the birds. They are abhorrent not to be eaten. The eagle and the vulture and the buzzard. And the kite and the falcon in its kind, every raven in its kind, and the ostrich and the owl, and the seagull and the hawk in its kind, and in the little owl, and the cormorant, and the great owl, and the white owl, and the pelican, and the carrion vulture, and the stork and the heron in its kinds, and the hoopoe and the bat, and the winged insects that walk on all fours are detestable to you. Yet these things you may eat. Now listen, kids, this is for the kids. The insects that you are allowed to eat. Here we go. Yet these you may eat among all the winged insects which walk on all fours. Those which have uh, 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 have above their feet jointed legs which make them jump on the earth. 
These of them you may eat, the locust of its kind, the devastating locust of its kind, the cricket of its kind, and the grasshopper of its kind. But all of the winged insects, which are four-footed, are detestable to you. By these, moreover, you shall be made unclean. Whoever touches their carcasses becomes unclean until evening. And whoever picks up any of their carcasses shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. Concerning all the animals which divide the hoof but do not make a split hoof or which do not chew the cud, they are unclean to you. Whoever touches them becomes unclean. Also, whatever walks on its paws among all the creatures that walk on all fours are unclean to you. Whoever touches their carcasses becomes unclean until evening. And the one who picks up their carcasses shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. They are unclean to you. Now, these are to you the unclean among the swarming things that swarm on the earth, the mole and the mouse and the great lizard in its kind and the gecko and the crocodile and the lizard and the sand reptile and the chameleon. These are to you the unclean among all the swarming things. Whoever touches them when they are dead becomes unclean until evening. Also, anything on which one of them may fall when they are dead becomes unclean, including any one article or clothing or a skin or a sack, any article of which is of which use is made. It shall be put in the water and be unclean until evening, and then it shall become clean. As for any earthenware vessel into which one of them may fall, whatever whatever is in it becomes unclean and you shall break the vessel. Any of the food which may be eaten on which water comes shall become unclean. Any of the food which may be eaten on which water comes shall be unclean. And any liquid which may be drunk in every vessel shall be unclean. Everything, moreover, on which part of their carcass may fall becomes unclean. An oven or stove shall be smashed. Uh, They are unclean and shall continue as unclean to you. Nevertheless, a spring or a cistern collecting water shall be clean, though the one who touches their carcass shall be unclean. If a part of their carcass falls on any seed for sowing, which is to be sown, it is clean. Though if water is put on the seed and part of their carcass falls on it, it shall be unclean to you. Also, if one of the animals dies, which you have for food, the one who touches its carcass becomes unclean until evening. He too who eats some of its carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. And the one who picks up the carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. Now, every swarming thing that swarms on the earth is detestable not to be eaten. Whatever crawls on its belly and whatever walks on all fours, whatever has many feet in respect to every swarming thing that swarms on the earth, you shall not eat them for they are detestable. Do not render yourselves detestable through any of the swarming things that swarm and you shall not make yourselves unclean with them so that you become unclean. Now, note the last four verses. For I am the Lord, your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy as I am holy. And you shall not make for yourselves and you shall not make yourselves unclean with any of the swarming things that swarm on the earth. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy for I am holy. This is the law regarding the animal and the bird and every living thing that moves in the waters and everything that swarms on the earth to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean, between the edible creature and the creature which is not to be eaten. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for its truth. Father, thank you for the profound lessons that we can still learn to this day from these laws that were given to the nation of Israel so long ago. Father, help us to discern that which is good and right and beautiful about this text today, especially as it relates to your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. So this morning, um, so those of you who were with us last Sunday on Easter, you now see why I said it wasn't a very fitting Easter message from Leviticus. Um, now, next week's actually would have been. Had it fallen differently, we probably could have stayed in Leviticus. But, uh, you know, everybody, not everybody, 75% of everybody was about to go and eat some ham for lunch after service that day. And so really weird passage to preach when that's going to be taking a bacon wrapped everything for Easter Sunday. And so we'll kind of talk about that. So the f- 45 out of the 47 verses in this chapter are laws concerning clean and unclean animals and whether or not you can eat them. That, that's what it's about. Like just black ink on white paper. That's what 45 out of the 47 verses in this text are about. They're about laws concerning clean and unclean animals. Now, 
I'm not going to spend an inordinate amount of time walking through all of the ins and outs of that. Uh, People ask the question, why would God give such detailed restrictions on the kinds of animals you could and couldn't eat and the kinds of animal carcasses you could and couldn't touch and all of that kind of stuff? And um, the, the very simple answer is, I don't know. Now, the more complicated answer is there's a lot of theories out there as to why God gave these regulations about what you could eat and what you couldn't eat and what you could touch and what you couldn't touch. And and the theories run the gamut of things. And this reason why I'm not going to go into all of it, because they're so varied and just so on the one hand, God was uh, supplying for them. An understanding of kinds of animals that would not be to their health benefit before they would have had knowledge of that health benefit. And thus the nation of Israel was a healthier people than the other nations that didn't know better not to eat scavenging kinds of animals. Like there's people who actually think that that's one of the theories as to why God gave it. Because when you when you really look at the animals that, you know, are the ones you shouldn't eat. At least half of them are the ones that taste good. And I had a heart doctor friend one time say, if, if you eat food and it tastes good, spit it out because that's what messes up your heart. So, you know, so all the ones in here that don't taste good are actually way healthier for you. And those are the ones you can eat. So the, the theory might be on to something, maybe, perhaps. I don't know. But it's a stretch. There's nothing in the text that tells us that God's trying to regulate their health or, or you know, whatever. Here's what we know. This is the only thing that we know for sure about these regulations regarding what kinds of animals you can and cannot eat. God wanted the nation of Israel to look different in every way from every other nation. That's the only thing we know for sure. And what better way to look different from everybody else than to have hyper restrictions on the kinds of food you can and cannot eat. To the point that it actually becomes somewhat sacrificial. You know, Israel's on one side, right up next to the sea. You know, there's many of Jesus's own disciples were fishermen. It's. Highly likely that they would have caught some of these unclean creatures from the lakes and the rivers and the seas that they then couldn't actually use for anything. They had to throw them back. You can't sell them to other Hebrew people. They're not going to eat them. Perfectly fine for food because all the pagan nations get to eat them. And so at the end of this. We can speculate a lot of stuff, but what we know for sure is that God wanted the nation of Israel to be different in every possible way from all the other nations. And this was one way that God chose to do that. That's the only thing we know for sure about these food regulations. Now, I think it's interesting, and this is where we're going this morning with the sermon. Four times in the book of Leviticus... There is an injunction toward holiness directly given as as it relates to the people and their reflection of God's image. We, we know it's repeated in the New Testament. We know that most of our English Bibles do it a little different in, in Jesus's language. You know, you'd be perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect. It's the same notion of be holy as God is holy. Peter talks about it. Uh, implications of it are given in the New Testament four times in the book of Leviticus. God makes the statement, you are to be holy as I am holy. And I find it fascinating that the very first time it happens is here in a text about what kind of animals you're supposed to eat or not eat. Because as a 21st century American Gentile evangelical Christian. How's that for a lot of labels? I have. Well, my doctor would disagree. I personally have no food restrictions. Amanda doesn't always feel that that's accurate. There's sometimes I make 
choices. And she says to me what we say to our kids, you should make good choices. I'm like, oh, this is a good choice right here. You know, I, if you've ever been to this place right around the corner, Roost, you know, the first time I ever heard about it, it was like chicken salad. I hate chicken salad. Like, I'm not a mayonnaise guy. I hate chicken salad. And the very first time they opened up, a bunch of people from church were like, hey, we want to go to Roost. We're going to eat some chicken salad. I'm like, oh, really? So I'm going to get a peanut butter and jelly sandwich when I get home, right? And so we walk into this joint, and they have a sandwich that's for people who like want to eat real food called the Rooster. And it's got all manner of stuff on it. An almost ungodly amount of meat. Of all kinds, with a fried egg on top and some jalapenos on it and some kind of barbecue sauce. Like, they brought this thing out, and I kid you not, it was like, you know. And I was like, oh, I'm coming to this place every week. Yes. So there's no food restrictions for me because I'm a Gentile who's in the new covenant. And we all know, like, it's it's almost like part of Sunday school training for for Protestant Christians. God made all food clean. We don't have any food restrictions. That was for them. Jesus declared it in Mark. He declared, uh, got declared again in Acts with the vision that, that Peter has of Cornelius. We don't have any food restrictions. I have l- literally studied the book of Leviticus prepping for sermons, eating a sausage biscuit. I have really done this. Like I was eating my sausage like, oh, yeah, you know, don't eat the pig. Okay, cool. You know, and so, I, and so for us, it seems incredibly out of place. That the very first injunction that we have in the book of Leviticus, where God makes the phrase, you're to be holy as I am holy, comes at the end of a long line of food restrictions. Just seems kind of strange. Just seems weird. So for us to understand this, for us to understand this, we have to understand over time and history, what happened with this law and what sort of environment it created in the nation of Israel's relationship with other people, the Jewish people's relationship with other people who were not Hebrew, who were not Jewish. What does the New Testament say about this section of legal code and how are we to understand the injunction to be holy as God? Because here's the thing. If eating certain kinds of food or not eating certain kinds of food is a reflection of the holiness of God, which this text seems to be saying that it is. Hey, look, here's what you should eat and what you shouldn't eat. You be holy like I'm holy. Somehow it seems God is pointing to his own holiness as wrapped up in whatever demonstration we're getting from these food restrictions. And if that's true, God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Somehow these food restrictions seem to reflect the holiness of God. So, but we've been told there aren't any food restrictions and you can still reflect the holiness of God. So how does that work? Because almost, I won't say no one, but almost no one in this room is overly concerned about this list. Like, you know, when we go out to eat on you know Sundays after church, we don't like walk into the restaurant and pull the menu out on one side and Leviticus 11 on the other side and be like, does this have a little owl in it? I've got to be careful about that. Like, no, we don't do that. So how does the New Testament help us understand this list as a reflection of the eternal holiness of God that we are to mimic? And so I, I, I want to walk us through some cultural context. The first thing that we need to start with is the Jewish tradition that emerged from this, from Leviticus 11, regarding the cleanness or the uncleanness of non-Jewish people, particularly those that they labeled the Gentiles. You know, in our modern culture, we have an incredibly complicated system of, of race and ethnicity. And, and you know that if you fill out any online form, like and ask the question, you know, what is your race or ethnicity? And you click on it and it's like this massive drop down list. It's almost like you have to take a, a, you know, the what is it? The DNA test, you know, and you have to have like the chart next to you because it's like, OK, I'm 
8% this and 4% that? Like, is there like a grid and overlap where I can pick which one it is? You know, Jewish folks made it really easy. There were two main races of people with a third race of people that kind of got added in. There were Jewish people. There were Gentile people. And then there were those awful half-breeds of Jewish and Gentile people called the Samaritans. That's it. You know, but what about like, what about like different groups of Gentile? No different groups of Gentiles. You were either Jewish or you were Gentile or you were the birth product of a Jewish and a Gentile person who had come together. And we call you Samaritans and you lived in Samaria. That's where we lumped you. But eventually it became anybody that was not fully Jewish or not fully Gentile. That's it. They made it real easy. The drop down list had three. And by the way, if you're going to put parentheses by it, the way that they had started to think about groups of people was Jewish parentheses clean. Gentile parentheses unclean. And then you can imagine how they felt about the Samaritans. That's how they got to begin to think about this. The Jewish people progressively developed a view of non-Jewish people as unclean. And it likely started, there's a lot of historical evidence to prove that it started from the language found in Leviticus 11 regarding the cleanness of what you eat and what you do not eat. The clean and unclean animal laws branched out to apply to people. And the argument essentially went like this. Since non-Jewish people don't adhere to the laws of cleanliness and ritual purity, they remain in a state of perpetually being unclean and ritualistically impure because of the things they eat and touch. That's basically what happened with the argument. And you see this in the New Testament during Jesus' time. How do your disciples... Eat bread without first washing their hands, as is the tradition, as is the custom. Well, what's behind that story? We know that story. What's behind that story? What's behind that story is you might have come in contact with something a Gentile had come in contact with throughout the day. You need to make sure that you're ritualistically clean because you've probably been touching all over the unclean stuff the Gentiles have been touching. Well, why are the Gentiles unclean? Because they've been eating and touching all manner of unclean stuff all the time. They're just unclean all the time. And by extension, anything they touch becomes unclean. And by extension, if you touch what they've touched, you've become unclean. Do you see the progress that gets made here? And so this went from, Leviticus 11 went from a description of how you as an individual, if you were in the Jewish nation, and the Jewish nation collectively, if they followed it, could be ritualistically pure before God, to what's wrong with all those people over there? That's what it became. Do you see anything in this text in Leviticus 11 that should make the jump of the nation of Israel wagging its finger at other nations going, you're impure and unclean before God. That This doesn't say that. But that's where they got to. That's where they landed. So much so that their view of the Samaritan, a person who was partially Jewish and partially Gentile, there's some strong evidences in history that they would go out of their way to not even walk through Samaria. The, mo- the ones who are more rigorously, ritualistically pure. Who are like, I'm going to be real holy, and there's no way that I'm going through that, that land. I mean, the Gentiles are bad enough, but a Jewish person who had a child with a Gentile person, they're... No way. I'm not doing that. It was an incredible thing that happened. If you would like, if you want to mark these down, if you'd like a little historical context of, of, of ancient Jewish writings that you can read that kind of talk about the uncleanliness of Gentile people and how that emerged and the view that, that began to come from that. There's a book called Jubilees. You can go to chapter 22 in Jubilees. There's another book called Tobit, T-O-B-I-T. You can go to chapter 1 there. They had another writing called Judith. Uh, you can go to chapter 12 of Judith and see. And then there was a story in Second Temple um, uh, Judaism called Joseph and Asenath, uh, his Egyptian wife. Uh, chapter 7, it was a story of him and one of his Egyptian wives. And it actually, in chapter 7, it claims that he would not even kiss his Egyptian wife because her face was un- her mouth was unclean because she kept eating unclean food. Like, that's the argument that it makes in the story. That he wouldn't kiss his wife, who was Egyptian, 
because she was Gentile and she didn't follow the Jewish regulations of food. And if you go back and you look at the story in, in Genesis, you know, the Egyptians ate by themselves because they found shepherds loathsome. But Joseph ate away from the Egyptians who also ate away from his brothers because at the end of it, they were all thinking all of them were loathsome. Newsflash. I want to shock everybody with this morning. Racism's not a new thing. And it's not just one particular color of skin or one particular country that produces all the races. You can find racial tendencies among all people groups throughout all of history. I don't want to eat with these people because they eat the wrong kinds of food. They're unclean. I don't want to eat with these people because of the kind of work that they do. They're unclean. They're not like us. You find it. And you say, Philip, why are you bringing that up? Because the key story in the New Testament that connects to Leviticus chapter 11 is about that very thing. Flip over to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. We're we're just going to pull the band-aid all the way off this morning. Acts chapter 10. Cornelius, who was a Gentile, had a vision. It says, now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius. Now listen, you don't get more Gentile than what they're about to say about him. Hear me this morning. Listen to this very closely. There was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort. You don't get any more Gentile than that in first century Jewish reality. Why? Because the Italians, the Romans, had occupied their land as a demonstration of God's disfavor with them. That's the end of Deuteronomy, by the way. If you keep this covenant, blessings. If you don't keep this covenant, your enemies will occupy you. They were under foreign enemy occupation at this time. They were longing for the Messiah to come and overthrow these horrible, wicked, unclean Gentile Romans who were taking up their space and controlling their dominion. That's what they wanted. It's what they're longing for. Even when the story is happening, there's still many Jewish people longing for this. And there's a guy who's a centurion of the Italian cohort who has a vision. He was a devout man, one who feared God. So he was a God-fearing Gentile with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to their God continually. And about the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw a vision of an angel of God who just came in and said to him, Cornelius. And fixing his gaze on him, being much alarmed, he said, what is it, Lord? And he said, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch the men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He's staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants. And after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. On the next day, as they were uh, on their way uh, approaching the city, Peter went up to the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. But he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. And he saw the sky open up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. And a voice came and said, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Do you know where he gets that list from? This is a real easy pop quiz question. Do you know where he gets that list from? Leviticus 11. The text we just read. Now, there's a repeating of it in Deuteronomy, but he gets that list from Leviticus, Deuteronomy 14, if you want to cross check it later. But Leviticus 11. This is where he gets this list from. I've never done that before. And again, a voice came to him a second time and says, what God has cleansed. No longer consider unholy. This happened three times and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Now, while Peter was greatly perplexed in his mind as to what as to what the vision which he had seen might be. Behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate and calling out. They were asking whether Simon, who was called Peter, was staying there. And while Peter was reflecting on the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. But get up, go downstairs and accompany them without any misgivings, for I have sent them myself. And Peter went down to the men. Behold, I'm the one you're looking for. What reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divided. 
divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house to hear a message from you. And he invited them in and gave them lodging. And on the next day, he got up and went away with them. And some of the men from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, he entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them. And they called together all of his relatives and close friends. I just want to go ahead and tell you, most of those would have been Gentile people. But Peter raised up saying, um, uh, and then when Peter entered, Cornelius met him, fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter said, raised him up and said, stand up, I am just a man. And he talked to him and he entered and he found many in the assembled. And he said to them, you yourselves know how, listen to this, how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or visit him. You're going to be really hard pressed to find a law in the Old Testament that says that. So I'm going to throw that out there. You'll find a lot of Jewish tradition that interprets some of the laws that way, like Leviticus 11, meaning, hey, these unclean people eat these unclean animals all the time, so therefore they're unclean, and we probably shouldn't associate with them. That's from Jewish tradition, not chapter and verse in the actual law. Yet God, listen to what he says, though, about this. Remember, all of this is stemming from Peter's view of clean and unclean animals in Leviticus 11. This whole story in Acts 10 is an outworking of his understanding of Leviticus 11 and how that applies to Gentile people. He said, and yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. That's why I have come to you without raising any objection. So I ask, what reason have you sent for me? And of course, if you know the rest of the story, they want to hear the gospel. And Peter shares with them the gospel. And they receive the Holy Spirit. And he and all of the others marvel. Listen to this. They marvel at the fact that the Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit. How can these unclean people receive the Holy Spirit? All because of how they understood and applied Leviticus 11. Which has nothing to do with people. And everything to do with how the Jewish nation should eat things to stay ritualistically pure before God when they made their tabernacle sacrifices. Doesn't say anything about other nations and other people and they're standing before the Lord or not. And are they clean or unclean? God said, you are a nation. I've drawn you to myself. This is what I want you to be about so that you're different from the other nations so that you don't look like them. And so that you stay ritualistically pure before me when you're making your sacrifices. This is how I want you to be. And they took that law and they applied it so broadly that not... It wasn't the animal that was unclean or the Jewish person who ate the animal who became for a night unclean. It became an entire group of people who lived in a perpetual state of uncleanness. That's what they did with it. So much so that Peter, who saw all the miracles of Jesus, saw Christ raised from the dead and was set apart by Christ to do a particular work as an apostle, would marvel that the grace of Christ would be great enough to give the Holy Spirit to these unclean Gentiles. Like it just blew his mind. It blew his mind. Friends, here's the thing. This story in Acts 10 and this thing that we saw back here in Leviticus chapter 11 is a declaration not of the status of each individual person. Rather, it's a provision by God in history for two purposes. This is my argument about Leviticus 11. Purpose one of Leviticus 11. The immediate recipients of Leviticus 11, the nation of Israel, the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, were to follow it As a way to demonstrate ritual obedience to their God. There was nothing necessarily good or bad about eating certain kinds of animals. We know that to be true because later God says you can eat whatever animals you want to. We know that that's the case. We know that built up in the animal itself is not some intrinsic good or bad. But God is putting some. God's putting something. Does this sound familiar? God's putting something out in front of his people saying you can have all of this, but don't have that. 
It's a very familiar story. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And so he put in front of his people, listen, you can have these animals, but don't have these. I need to see that my people will obey my voice, even, hear this friends, even if they don't understand fully why. Garden of Eden. And by the way, a host of things in our own lives. How many times has it been very clear to you the way that you should follow the Lord, but you have no idea why you should follow him that way? I mean, when he called Abraham, he said, hey, I'm going to take you to a land you don't know among a people that you've never seen before. Abraham's like, OK, he had no clue, like as to the whys and the what's and everything that was going to happen. I mean, God wants us to be obedient and sometimes obedient without full understanding. And so that's one part of Leviticus 11. But I would contend that another part of Leviticus 11 is that this was in preparation. Because what is the purpose of the law? The law's purpose is not to save, but as Paul says, it's a taskmaster to demonstrate our need of salvation. Because what do human beings do with the law of God? They twist it for their own purposes. And so God gives this law of cleanliness and uncleanness based on kinds of animals you eat. Nowhere should it ever be applied to another human person. Nowhere other than the person who ate the animal among the nation of Israel. Other than the person who ate the animal among the nation of Israel who is momentarily unclean until they go through the cleansing ritual. Does it say you should apply all of the concepts of uncleanness to entire groups of other people perpetually and forever? Which is exactly what the nation of Israel did. From this law, they birthed their hatred and animosity of the Gentiles. And that's not what this law was for. This law was not to breed hate in one group of people toward another, but rather love toward God. And what do humans do with the law of God more times than not? We twist it to our own ends and have it do something it was never meant to do. And what they did with it was basically say an entire group of people are unholy, unclean, untouchable, unworthy. Un- Listen. What was Peter really marveling about in Acts 10? God didn't just save these people. But gave them the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. Who's a down payment for the future inheritance. To be had in Jesus Christ. He didn't just save them in an immediate sense. He saved them in the exact same way he saved us. What happened to the distinction between the Jew and the Gentile that we were supposed to have? It's gone. This is what was blowing Peter's mind. How could God save a people like that? And friends, if you don't know or believe that Peter's racism ran deep. We have later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writing in one of his letters. Saying that when many Gentiles began to come into the faith. That Peter started to not eat with them and not welcome. He reverted back to his, I got to kind of keep a safe distance from these unclean Gentiles sort of mindset. And it says that Paul, when he came there, had to rebuke Peter to his face for doing that. But when you've been taught your whole life from a misinterpretation of the law, then an entire group of people are unclean and unworthy of God's love. It's really hard to shake that off. And it took a miraculous work of God to let Peter see it. And this is how the New Testament addresses this law. So let me ask you then, how then does that reflect our holiness? Why would God insert in Leviticus 11, starting in verse 44, the last couple of verses of the chapter, this first injunction to be holy the way that he is holy when it relates to animal food and how we eat animals and how we deal with animals and how we kill them and don't kill them and all that manner of stuff. Because I believe that God and his sovereign foreknowledge And his understanding of the past, present, and future as one unified event in his eternality 
knew full well that his people would misapply this law to feed their racial tendencies. And so later, when God presents Peter with animals, hey, take, kill and eat. No, I don't eat unclean things. Hey, well, there's a Gentile guy's uh, uh, group coming to say they want you to come to his house. Are you you're not going to go in his house either? If I tell you to go to his house and preach the gospel to them, are you going to say you don't mix with unclean things then too? Don't you dare call unclean. This is Acts 10. That which God has called clean. Don't you dare do it. And friends, here's the thing. Holy means to be set apart, to be blameless. And friends, I want you to consider the grand design of Christ in the gospel. What is this grand design of Christ in the gospel? Each nation, friends, hear me. I said it before, but I want to reiterate it before we talk about Christ's grand design. Grand design. Each nation of people has found reasons to hate or despise those not like them. History is filled with examples of this. And I know this might get me into some trouble and I know this is going to be on the Internet. And I really don't care what the haters have to say. Racism was not born in the late 1700s, early 1800s among American whites. Racism has existed among all ethnic groups everywhere for all time. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. There is a tendency in Adam for us to to be suspicious of that which is not like us. It doesn't even have to be a race thing. There's a reason why men and women do this all the time. Because we're not like each other. And you're suspicious of that which is not like you. That's why sexism exists. And then if you add a layer on top of that, where somebody doesn't look like you on the outside, that's where racism comes in. We're suspicious of that which is not like us. It's part of the fall. We became at enmity with God and we also became at enmity with each other. And that which God did among the human species of creating this beautiful mosaic, this great cacophony of color, this exquisite display of uniqueness of cultural reality. Humanity in its sinful has marred that and turned it into something wretched and wicked that needs to be redeemed. And so he gives this law. He says, hey, listen, I want to talk to you about the kind of food you should eat. I want to talk to you about the kind of food you should eat. Because one day, one of your oh-so-bright scholars is going to say, hey, if we're not supposed to eat this food and this food makes us unclean, then I guess those people who eat it all the time are just unclean always. Great reason for me to hate them. God said so right here, although he said nothing of the sort. And so when it comes time for the Gentiles to enter into the kingdom of God through Christ Jesus, the vision that's given to Peter is a vision of Leviticus 11. What does Leviticus 11 really mean? You're to be holy as I am holy. And you don't dare call unclean anything that I've called clean. I'm the one who makes a determination about what is clean and what is unclean. And I never said those Gentiles were unclean. I said these animals were. You had better go to his house. You had better preach the gospel. And you had better watch the Holy Spirit do his great work and these people that I've come to save. It's a beautiful thing. And so, friend, as we see the story of humanity swell with disregard and contempt toward each other and toward God, we see this grand design of Christ enter in. That redemption will come to what? Every nation, every people, every tribe, and every tongue. The grand design of Christ is that salvation comes to all. It's, it's, it, there's neither Jew nor Greek, free nor slave, male nor female. But the de- declaration of salvation is that all are one in Christ Jesus. And so, friends, to truly reflect at least one aspect of the holiness of God is to put all uh, put aside all notions of tribal superiority. Did you hear me this morning? If you really want to reflect God's holiness per Leviticus 11, how it's understood in Acts 10. You have to put aside all notions of tribal 
superiority. You are not better than and they are not worse than because God made them look different from you. You say, Philip, that seems so basic. Yeah, and yet we're still fighting about it. And part of Christ's grand design is that we embrace the very simple truth that in Adam, we all die. Doesn't matter what color you are. Doesn't matter what language you speak. Doesn't matter what country you were born in. Doesn't matter the hue of brown you are. By the way, that's the color scale of human skin. For those artist people in the room who understand color mixing, you can take like a couple of colors and mix the entire hue of all human skin and it's on the same scale of range. Some are light and some are dark and there's a wonderful range in the middle. But it's all the same hue of color. And God has done this beautiful thing. And in the process of doing this beautiful thing, we in our sin being dead in Adam have made it this ugly thing. And the way to overcome this, the way to reflect the holiness of God truly in this is that we embrace the truth that in Adam all die. Doesn't matter where you're from or what you look like. And in Christ, like Cornelius, all can have life. Every nation... Every people, every tribe, every tongue. I thank God regularly that if Jesus were to walk in this room right now the way he looked in the first century, he would not look like me. And yet he died for me anyway. I would have been considered like the story that Jesus told in the gospel One of the dogs. That's who I would have been. I've come to feed the children of Israel, not the dogs. That's what Jesus said. And that woman responded, but even the dogs get to eat the crumbs from their master's table. And he said, I've not seen faith so great among any in Israel. Go, your child will be healed. Friends, this morning. The very first injunction in the book of Leviticus to be holy as God is holy was around the kind of food you eat. But friends, this text was never really about the kind of food you eat. It was about being obedient to the Lord. Understanding the holy versus the profane and that that is made declared by God. And friend, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, all of us if we are still in Adam, are unclean and profane. And you don't get to be a little less profane and a little less unclean because of the color of your skin or the country that you were born in. If you were in Adam without Christ, you are unclean. And the only way for you to become clean, to become holy, is for you to become one with Christ. And God, it says in the New Testament, regarding this very issue, is not a respecter of persons. He doesn't care if you're Jewish or Gentile or Sumerian or any host of ethnicities that you want to create in our modern sociological context. He doesn't care about any of that. Doesn't care the measure of poverty that you were born into, the level of education that you have, the socioeconomic standing that belongs to you, the political alignments that you have, or any other barrier or barricade that you want to create between yourself and another human being. Christ Jesus on the cross has come and he's torn down the greatest dividing wall of all, the division wall between humanity and God, because our sin has separated us from God so that he will not look upon us and he will not see us. But Christ Jesus has come and created a bridge of the gap through his own blood and his resurrection from the dead that we might stand righteous before God because of his work for us and he is colorblind in this process. He is the redeemer of all mankind 
in the one who makes us holy. And friends, if we truly want to reflect the holiness of God, we see the world as the two new races that Christ has created. Those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. Of which we formerly were one. And have been adopted into the other. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for difficult truth from your word. Father, thank you for these hard things that you show us. That that reveal possibly some things about us that we maybe don't want to look at or see. Some thoughts and some processes that we need to evaluate that maybe we want to leave alone. Father, forgive us for any notion of tribalism that exists in us. Forgive us for any notion of the cleanness or uncleanness of the other based on sight alone. Father, forgive us when we lift up dividing walls between ourselves and other human beings over things that you yourself have have not spoken to. Forgive us when we call unclean that which you have called clean. Father, cause us to, by your grace and for your glory, lay that down. And Father, let us embrace the grand design, the greater vision of the Lord Jesus Christ, who in his saving purposes tears down all those distinctions. And the only distinction that matters is, are we dead in our trespasses and sins or are we alive together in Christ? Father, thank you that in your foreknowledge, sovereign, eternal wisdom, you knew that your people would distort this law, exposing a great flaw in humanity and their sin. And thank you that you so graciously redeemed this notion of holiness in the story in Acts 10 with Peter going and acknowledging the work that you were doing even among those not like him. Father, we thank you that your word is true, that in Christ and in his salvation he brings, there's neither Jew nor Greek, free nor slave, male nor female, but all are one in Christ. The, the place at the foot of the cross only makes the distinction between those who are in their sin and those who yield their sin to Christ for the forgiveness that he brings. Father, we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand as we sing a song of response together this morning.